Alright, well hello everybody. Welcome back to the History Brothers. My name is Andrew Roth. I'm Wyatt. And we're here to talk about uh, Black History Month. Today we're going to be talking about key historical figures throughout history who are African Americans who changed the world in the most significant ways and influencing many people. Um, Wyatt today is going to start first with the first topic of Frederick Douglass. Yep, um, Frederick Douglass has always been a favorite of mine, not just uh, in African American history, but American history in general. He has some of the most, he had some of the biggest influence uh, in getting abolitionism passed in in Congress. I mean, he was never, what's interesting about him, he was never a politician. He was more of what you would, I mean, you could, I could use the term activist but honestly i feel like that's selling it short he it's just with his name and his influence it just seemed like he was a much bigger person than that if you get what i mean um interesting fact we know him as frederick douglas but his original name was frederick augustus washington bailey and he never learned of his actual birth date although according to encyclopedia britannica it was uh, February 1818 in Taubout County, Maryland, U.S., and he died February 20th, 1895 in Washington, D.C. He was an African-American abolitionist, orator, newspaper publisher, and author who was famous for his autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. He became the first black U.S. Marshal and was the most photographed American man of the 19th century. Really? More than Lincoln? Oh. That's impressive. Good for him. Right. He also does have a... What is it? A look of, like, posterity, you know? Like... Yeah. Not I'm the man look, but, like, you just see a photo of him and you're like, oh, that guy's important. (laughs) You know? (laughs) You know, you see photos of people in, like, the 19th century and you're like, oh, man, they look important. Right. Of course, we know with the history books, Frederick Douglass was actually important. Because some people, you know, they have a really good photo of themselves back oh, then, yeah. but they're not necessarily famous. They're just big aristocrats. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I did not know he became the first U.S. Marshal. The first black U.S. Marshal. Oh, wow. I actually never knew that. Yeah. Uh, Douglass, uh, just for reference, I'm reading this from Encyclopedia Britannica. Britannica. I have actually read his narrative of Life of a Slave, and it was really interesting. I mean, the sad thing is I don't remember it very well for some reason, which is weird because, like, I'm pretty sure, yeah, I, like, read the whole thing, even. It's not very long. If you're interested in reading that, it's not very long. Obviously, it's a darker tale because he's describing his life as a slave in Maryland, very interesting that he was a slave that was so close to the northern states. So, like, you know, people, how slaves would just run up to the north for freedom. And yeah. the fact that he was so close. But anyways, that's a little sidetrack. Uh, Douglas was born enslaved as Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey on Home Hill Farm in Talbot County, Maryland. Although the date of his birth was not recorded, Douglas estimated that he had been born in February 1818. And he later celebrated his birthday on February 14th. Douglas was owned by Captain Aaron Anthony, who was the clerk and superintendent of overseers for Edward Lloyd V, also known as Colonel Lloyd. That's a fancy name, Edward Lloyd. 
<laughs> yeah. A, a wealthy landowner and slaveholder in Eastern Maryland. Like many other enslaved children, Douglas was separated from his mother, Harriet Bailey, when he was very young. He spent his formative years with his maternal grandmother, Betsy Bailey, who had the responsibility of raising young enslaved children. Hmm. Let's see. Fast forward... When Douglas was age five or six, he was taken to live on Colonel Lloyd's home plantation, White House. Lloyd's plantation functioned like a small town. Young Douglas found himself among several other enslaved children competing for food and other comforts. In 1826, at approximately age eight, he was sent to live with Hugh and Sophia Ald at Fells Point, Baltimore. Hugh's brother, Captain Ice Ald, was the son-in-law of Douglas's owner, Aaron Anthony. Douglas's responsibility in Baltimore was to care for Hugh and Sophia's young son, Thomas. Sophia began teaching Douglas how to read along with her son. The lessons ended abruptly, however, when Hugh discovered what had been going on and informed Sophia that literacy would spoil a slave. According to Douglas, Hugh stated that if a slave were given an inch, he would take an all, a, u- a unit of measure equal to about 45 inches. Basically saying you give them a foot in the door, they're going to want to go all the way in. Oh, yeah. Which, with Douglas, that was very true because um, I learned from... A uh, short five-minute video uh, created by a uh, non-profit prayer you. They he he was caught reading, and then he was sent to a slave, a particular uh, s- slave owner who was known for beating and breaking slaves, like mentally. Jeez. I mean, physically, obviously, but oh, yeah. doing that mentally. But eventually, he. But in doing so, after getting so many beat, after getting some beatings, Douglas fought back and beat him, and after that, he was never beaten again. Yeah. Because he found the courage to stand up for himself. Doug, oh, Douglas continued his learning in secret by exchanging bread for lessons from the poor white boys he played with in the neighborhood, and by tracing the letters in Thomas's old school books. Very smart. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, teenage Douglas experienced harsher living conditions with Ald, who is known for his abusive practices. Uh, January 1833, released to a local farmer. He was, in 1834, was sent to William Freeland's farm. Living and working conditions were better under Freeland. However, Douglas still desired his freedom. While living with Freeland, he started a Sabbath school at which he taught area blacks how to read and write. Along with four other enslaved men, Douglas plotted to escape north by taking a large canoe up the coast of Maryland and to proceed to Pennsylvania, but their plot was discovered. Douglas and the other participants were arrested. Captain Ald then sent Douglas back to Baltimore to live again with Hugh and Sophia Ald and to learn a trade. Hmm. He was hired out, uh, Hugh Ald hired out Douglas to local shipyards as a ship cocker. Now working as a skilled tradesman, Douglas was paid by the shipyards for his efforts. He would then submit his earnings to Ald, who gave Douglas a small percentage of the wages. Douglas would eventually hire out his own time, which meant that he paid Ald a set amount every week, but was responsible for maintaining his own food and clothing. During this time, Douglas became more involved in Baltimore's black community, which led him to meet Anna Murray, a freeborn black woman whom he would eventually marry. He would eventually, of course, as we know, escape from slavery, and he would become a significant leader in the abolitionist movement, where, which was essentially fo- 
uh, completely focused on freeing slaves. And there's actually one book I wanted to, of his that I wanted to talk about. And it's not narrative of the life of, it's not his narrative about his life as a slave. Other books he's written, just uh, as a brief mention, My Bondage and My Freedom, published in 1855, and Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, published in 1881. It says that the narrative quickly became popular, the especially in Europe, but the book's success contributed to Hugh Alt's determination to return Douglas to the conditions of enslavement. Interesting. Hmm. Um, another... Uh, the book I really want to discuss by him, which I think is an essential read for every American, especially with regards to slavery and the Civil War, is um, What is the Fourth of July to a Slave, essentially is what it's called. And the reason I bring that one up is because he's very critical of the, is he's very critical of American values out, which are, that are outlaid in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And, um, the reason he's so critical of that is because he's like, well, we have all, because of essentially slavery and uh, we had to fight a war to end it and uh, and then he as he is super critical of it he then goes on to say but i love the constitution because and the declaration because those are values which we can agree upon they're essential uh values for protecting our rights and while the founders certain while the founders and earlier generations of Americans certainly made mistakes. The Constitution allows us to is was written so that that could be corrected. Mm-hmm. So he, so he's critical of the founders, but he also gives them some praise because while you made a serious mistake, there is a way to correct that mistake. Right. So Douglas was not like. Ironically, some there were some abolitionists who wanted to completely do away with the Constitution. They were a small group. Yeah. But Frederick Douglass was not one of those abolitionists. He said, no, we shouldn't. This is a good document for gov- governance. We shouldn't get rid of it because it allows us to remove slavery. So Douglass, very critical of the United States founding, but also recognizes that the Constitution provides a way to correct that the mistake of slavery yeah so douglas and i really appreciate that that he's critical because i can only imagine what i i mean he goes into specifics of what he experienced but he and plenty of other african-americans experienced what he did and so his criticisms i think are very warranted yeah as we can as we know from uh historical sources and events and uh What's the term? Um, people's claims, like uh, people's cases. Of sources or... Um, sources. Re- recollections. Recollections. Yeah, I guess that works. Um, so his criticisms are warranted, but I love how he ends that... I love how he then continues that work with, but the Constitution is something we can still love, even though it was, in a way, abused to protect... Uh, 
in a way to uh, protect slavery. Mm-hmm. Mainly by the southern states. Right. Um, so that's mainly uh, what I want to talk about Frederick Douglass. I went into a bit of detail about his life as a slave because I think it's easier to remember him as the abolitionist, I think, because that's, I mean, that's kind of what we know him for. But it's easier to forget his beginnings and what led him to abolitionism, which is why I went into such detail. Mm-hmm. So I think that's all I have on uh, Frederick Douglass, if you want to go on to Booker T. Washington. Of course. So that's why I mentioned I am covering Booker T. Washington. He was, according to Unto a Good Land, a, a source I've been using for research, is one of the most influential spokesmen for blacks at the turn of the century. So the turn of the century of the late 1800s to the 1900s. So he was a bit younger than Frederick Douglass. Probably. I'm not quite for sure. I didn't I didn't look up his dates of when he was born and passed away. But he was born to slavery. He was into slavery. And in fact, he was a young boy when the Civil War happened. Mm. And after the Civil War, he and his family, when they were freed by the Emancipation Proclamation after the war, they, the, he and his mother and siblings went to went up north to where his father, or stepfather, I, for, I forget which one it was, uh, um, found a place for them to live. It was there that he began to learn more about uh, education, about to learn about reading and writing. He actually used um, uh, Noah Webster's book on how to say the letters of the alphabet and read. I forget what they called it, unfortunately, but what, what Noah Webster's book was. But also, he was just grew up into learning more about education and other hard work. And eventually, he began to guide his education through college and was able to earn a teaching um, degree and he was able to teach at other schools. Alongside that, then, he was appointed to one of the biggest positions that he is well-known for, which is becoming principal of the Tuskegee University, which is one of the most famous legacies of an American history, if people don't know about World War II with the Tuskegee Airmen. But in, when he was principal at the school, the school was nothing more than, I would say, uh, inside of a church building or even in a, in a normal shack. Like, for education, he had to make sure to... It was a very run-down, very decrepit... And according to um, his book, Up From Slavery, which is a publication he published later in life, it told most of his life story, as well as detailing his time as a teacher and as an educator. But for um, Tuskegee University, the school, like say for example, when he actually helped raise the money to build a building for it, to make the school into more of a place where there can actually be dorm rooms for the students, there can be educate rooms for teaching, as well as a cafeteria. In fact, the original cafeteria itself was... Literally, something dug underground, underground, like under a building, with made enough rooms to keep things standing, while also having, like, uh, run-down stuff, whatever they can find for seatings, like some benches or some other stuff, and some tables. Everything was of the poorest quality, but they still used what they could to make keep the school floating. And eventually, he was able to make the school into the... They were able to gather enough funds to make the school into one of the biggest places in in the country, especially for African-Americans to learn education and to grow into better careers. So, so flash forward, going backwards a little bit, Booker T. Washington has also, from what I've read in his book, Up From Slavery, he had recollections of his life. One example is when he was in slavery, when he and his family were given um, a breakfast for one time, alongside of a, actually when his mom was able to make pancakes for him for a little bit. 
And um, with everything else and with slavery, you're only given so much. And he was given only a little droplet of syrup for everything, so for that way his siblings could have some. And one thing that Booker T. Washington did when he was a boy in order to have enough syrup to cover the... I, I believe it was a pancake. It could have been a different food. I'm not for sure. But it suddenly involved the syrup. But he literally moved the plate around, trying to make sure the syrup covered everything on his plate so he can have... <laughs> So you can enjoy the savory and savor it more than having just a single droplet. I mean, imagine he didn't have much sweets earlier in his life, so. Exactly. So just making it, making it all balanced out, which made it all the more fascinating. But also, one of the educations that he did was when he taught kids, he actually had to teach them outside of a, outside of a building and stuff like that, and with no covering for them for anything that, that in case it rained or stormed. Like, literally, for, and, and when it started raining, he would have to teach kids. Then one student would have to come up and put an umbrella under him so he can talk about what he was teaching. But just, like, these are just various examples of throughout his life. I highly recommend the book. It's one of the best books I've ever read, Up From Slavery, by Booker T. Washington. But he was also known for having winning support from Northern philanthropists and Southern civic leaders for his program of Black Pride and Self-Help. This is also from Unto a Good Land. He was very much a man who thought it was important to teach African Americans about industrial education. So the idea of farming, building shops and buildings and stores and learning the hard work and ha hard work and ha hard hands of making things and getting things organized. However, there were people who disagreed with what this should be taught. He actually was at odds with uh, two gentlemen, two African Americans who studied in Harvard, um, W.E.B. Du Bois and William Monroe Trotter who firmly believed that it, was, that it should not be a good thing for African Americans to learn industrial education because they felt like it was a step backward instead of a step forward. They believed that the African Americans who were slaves before already knew all this stuff or should, um, if they learned more of this stuff, would be going back to what they once were and not what they should become. That was one of the big debates that they had between them and Booker T. Washington. And Booker T. Washington was still a firm believer in making sure that Farming, as well as learning how to build and make things and to get things organized, was a way to educate African Americans to actually build a life with family and friends. But the other big thing, too, I would, I would also mention is that Booker T. Washington, when he was principal at Tuskegee University, alongside his major contributions, he also was able, he also knew the other fam, another famous African American gentleman named um, George Washington Carver. For those who don't know George Washington Carver, he was the man who invented so many ways with the peanut. Um, how you can apply it. And he was also an educator of a science teacher there at the school and helped to build more educations in numerous ways. But Booker T. Washington had a very much a big life and he was honestly one of my favorite historical figures to research and a hero that I like to learn more about each time. But he has always been um, a, a big influence and is very fascinating to research, especially in his later life. He's currently buried actually at Tuskegee University because of his major contributions there at the school and no he just there's so much more unfortunately i didn't get enough information but i need to re um, once i research more i'll definitely be coming back to this topic whenever we will discuss further but the big one i really wanted to discuss which means why we'll be discussing together will be about martin luther king jr do you mind if i actually say something quick about washington Carver? yes so he did um and this is george washington carver who made the who invented the many ways of the peanut right he so interesting thing from again source encyclopedia encyclopedia britannica um it, this is with regards to his influence um in the in the politics of the time carver was evidently uninterested in the role his image played in the racial politics of the time 
His great desire in later life was simply to serve humanity and his work, which began for the sake of the poorest of the black sharecroppers. Pay, and for those who aren't sure what the sharecroppers are, so after slavery ended in the South, many African Americans still went back to where they had previously worked, but as sharecroppers. So they owned part, a portion of the property that they had formerly worked on in a system called sharecropping. Um, so that's just for reference. Um, sake of the poorest black sharecroppers paved the way for a better life for the entire South. So both blacks and whites. His efforts brought about a significant advance in agricultural training in an era when agriculture was the largest single occupation of Americans. And he extended Tuskegee's influence throughout the South by encouraging improved farm methods, crop diversification, and soil conservation. So Washington Carver was mainly influential in with regards to his scientific um, thinking on agriculture. He was known as an American agricultural chemist. Yep. And I imagine, so I know the University of Minnesota has agricultural schools or an agricultural school. And actually they have places in like rural MN where you can actually go and like understand like stuff like agricultural chemistry yeah. and stuff like that. So I imagine some of that, some of his studies and influence has seeped into minnesota um agriculture so wh which i think is really interesting so essentially washington carver he wasn't really interested in his he was less interested in his influence a, a, in himself as like a symbol of as a symbol in politics he more so he stuck to his work which i think yeah. is just i mean it's interesting how the people who don't intend to be symbols often become that by doing their job, by doing the work they're doing and doing it a really good job. Yeah. So someone like, I mean, Frederick Douglass, I don't know if his desire was to become a symbol. I I think you could argue he was wanting to be a symbol for African-Americans and yeah. for abolitionists alike, but he became that through his hard work and dedication. And we see George Washington Carver do the same thing here even though he didn't intend to become a symbol even though he was often used he was right. used by some during that time yeah so that's just some interesting little bits of information about carver i think i think he's a really interesting figure probably probably even underrated honestly oh, because yeah. i mean obviously most people aren't interested in agriculture mm -hmm. farming i think during this time in the late 1800s farming 50% of all American families were farmers. So yeah. it was widely, uh, you, it was a widely, um, form of economic livelihood. But now I think the percentage of Americans who are farmers is like 5%. Yeah. And out of like 300 million citizens, that's still a significant number. Mm. But, um, obviously compared to over century ago it's declined significantly oh yeah but still george washington carver had made a huge influence in agriculture and i imagine we are still bearing the the good fruits of his work and labor today right anyway we are going to now discuss uh, martin luther king jr yes um did you want to start or should i start i think you should start okay so martin luther king jr is one of my one of my honestly one of my heroes i did a research paper on him in high school and he just he, he was a man that I feel like is very much a hero to look up to. So he was a young pastor during the 60s when the Civil Rights Movement started to happen. 
and he um, helped organize multiple protests and peaceful demonstrations throughout his life until his tragic assassination in 68. He actually provided, according to uh, my source, Unto a Good Land, he provided the philosophy and personal inspiration for the movement. So, one of the first moments he ever attributed to the protests and other parts of the movement in uh, peaceful demonstrations was when was during the the Rosa Parks uh, protests. Now Rosa Parks, to add context, was an African American woman who sat on a bus in I believe I think it was was sixty three. Yeah, I think it was sixty three. Um, basically, and she was told by a white man to stand to go to the back of the bus. She firmly said no because because back in that time, but one of the laws was that when African Americans, when a white man, a white person wanted to sit down. African, uh, a black person would have to go to the back of the bus. And she firmly said no. And she, um, alongside that, people tried to get her off until she was forcibly removed from the bus. And the, in fact, if I remember correctly, now, if I'm saying this wrong, somebody please tell me. I believe she was arrested, not for sure. But I believe she was arrested. But I think she was, I'm yeah. pretty sure. But, but then because of that, that started out the possibility of doing a protest over this bus law. She actually wanted to continue trying to get, just try to get this law removed, and people joined it on that possibility, on that movement. Now, Martin Luther King, who, just to add more context to him being a pastor, he graduated from Morehouse College in a bachelor's, got um, his master's in Crozier Seminary, and got his PhD from Boston University, um, wanted to help in a way that was di- was different. Now, according to my te- the text I looked at, Unto a Good Land, he was never raised in the in the poor slums of for what African American some African Americans dealt with. So some people actually didn't think he would be the perfect man for the job for the protests. But one thing Martin Luther King Jr. knew about was one thing he knew how, one thing he knew how to preach, which is awesome. But he also studied um, Thoreau, Gandhi, and how to demonstrate peaceful action instead of showing violence in protests. Right. And he very much wanted to basically showcase what that was, and he. Basically, through and he basically organized demonstrations and peaceful protests alongside the bus demonstrations, and with that, he basically added more context and everything else to try to show things in a way that was peaceful and in a way that wasn't dangerous or anything else with it. Oh, I apologize, everybody. It was 1955, not the 60s. The 60s was a much different time. It was 55 when the Rosa Parks situation happened. Okay, but. I mean, civil rights was in 50s and 60s. Yeah, right, obviously, but I said the timeline wrong. So, oh, 55, gotcha. 56 was when, these, was when these demonstrations first happened. And according to Storm, reading a quick quote from the book itself, one of the things that Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King said was, <clears throat> um, we'll, be guided by the highest, um, we'll be guided by the highest principles of law and order. When King was indicted for violating Alabama's anti-boycott law, he responded, if we are arrested every day, we are. If we are exploited every day, if we are trampled over every day, don't ever let anyone pull you so low as to hate them. We must use the weapon of love. We must use have compassion and understanding for those who hate us. And according to what the book says, to add further context, the Montgomery confrontation. So the buses had unveiled a prophet who, in the years ahead, would prick the conscious consciences of millions of his fellow Americans, both north and south. And he, his persuasive genius was recognized in 1964 when he became the youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner. Mm. So, in, in other words, Martin Luther King Jr. wanted to teach people how to walk in love while also walking in protest and showing how, in, without because in violence it basically depicted a sense of hatred toward others, right. whereas in peaceful protests, he wanted to showcase how 
it want, was basically a way to showcase that they were walking in love despite the fact that their people are terrorizing them and hurting them. Mm-hmm. Now, alongside that, um, Martin Luther King, Dr. King would do more other protests and peaceful demonstrations throughout the years. And another big, big one that people would know, well, first I would like to acknowledge is the year 1963. And this year, he was arrested for a time and was sent to a Birmingham jail. And there were, African, there were actually black preachers who were concerned about what Dr. King was doing. Mm-hmm. And Dr. King actually said in 1963 that he basically, let's see if I can find it, was basically trying to teach them, tell the other ministers that if, from what I've read, that it's important to actually take a stand somewhere. We can't just like, wait for another season for a time. It's important to actually make a moment to start moving forward. And that's basically what the main context of the letter was, which basically demonstrated how, like, why would we have to wait? It's important to start doing it now. If these people never change, we've got to show them it's time to change and please move forward. There's a famous quote from him where he says, the time time to do something right is always now. I'm paraphrasing. Right. That's that's kind of what the quote essentially is getting at. The time to do something. The time to do the right thing is always right, yeah. right at that moment, right now. Exactly. And um, I really liked his, and we were talking about the letter, you're talking about the letter that he wrote while he was in prison, right? Yes, he was, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I, what I like it, what he says about that letter is with regards to civil disobedience. He's like, I'm willing to break the law and take responsibility for my breaking the law by being put in prison because I respect the authority of law not unjust law but just law because if we want because while he understood yes these are unjust laws that are i'm being imprisoned for but if i really do believe in the rule of law i need to respect that 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 rule of law has consequences for breaking it so he didn't, because he knew if he didn't do that, it would lead to violence and even anarchy type protests where violence would break out. So with regards to that, I, I have a huge respect for Martin Luther King Jr. because he was willing to practice civil disobedience, get a, pay the consequences for his actions, even if they were unjust, because he's saying, I'm doing this for the rule of law, for the rule of just law, yeah, not for the rule of anarchy or violence. Yeah, exactly. And that's one thing that well, why I have such high respect and why he's one of my heroes is just his demonstration of how to show how walking in love with others, especially when they try to fight, attack you, and especially when you're, when you're trying to show them that something is wrong. Right. It, it, you list Martin Luther King Jr. as one of your heroes. I, I really see Frederick Douglass as a hero of mine just because of how strong he was in disagree, uh, in criticizing the Constitution, but also in saying, but... The cons- because, but also his his praises of the Constitution, and not only because he recognizes while what how it was abused was wrong and bad and terrible, it can still be corrected. He saw the opportunity and he wanted to take it, just like Martin Luther King Jr. Did. Yeah, and um, he and Frederick Douglass. I don't know. I almost want to say I see him as a titan. Maybe that's giving him too much praise. But like, whenever I think of him, I just think of this tall, yeah, towering figure. Who, yeah, he's kind of imposing. Not because you're afraid of him, but like that guy, that guy take, like 
what is it? That guy um, takes charge, or he takes initiative. initiative. Takes charge, takes initiative, and and abolitionists were very devout to their cause, very oh, devout yeah. and very religious too. I don't know if Booker, well, I don't know if Booker T. Washington was a Christian. I don't know if Frederick Douglass was a Christian. I I think he was. It, it could be very possible. I mean, I do believe Booker T. Washington was a Christian. Yeah, I think so. I think Frederick Douglass was, but I would have to do more research on that. Yeah, I mean. A lot of the slaves did hear about the, ironically, did hear about the gospel message from their slave owners and would even... Depends on the slave owner, though. It would depend, it does depend on the slave owner, but they would hear about Christianity from, and the message of salvation, ironically, from their slave owners. Yeah. Some of them, and they would actually sing songs about um, being free and being liberated from their enslavement and Mm -hmm. i just that's something about african-american culture that i think is it's almost it's a weird irony i think because the very people who the the very people would abuse them are also the ones not not who would give them salvation because only jesus can give salvation yes but they would hear that from their own slave owners but they would understand some of them would actually understand better than their own slave owners which I think is one of the great ironies of that era of history. Right. Like they, but it also does depend on what they, how they taught it. Though. Right. It, because... it does depend on how they taught it. I mean, obviously not everyone heard it uh, correctly or well put. And plus yeah. most African-American slaves did not know how to read. Unlike Douglas who learned how to read and even continued to teach himself how to read. Um, yeah. I just think about that and I'm like, Oh, that's kind of, a weird irony of history i mean there's so yeah. many ironies of history but that one with american history kind of sticks out you know yeah it's just really interesting mm-hmm. but um i consider you consider martin luther king jr here i i consider frederick douglas here just because they were willing to put themselves in in the line of fire not literally i don't think they were i mean martin luther king jr was assassinated but they were willing to put themselves out in that kind of uh, ridicule and danger for the sake of something greater than yeah. themselves, which I think, as long, as long as that thing is good, which in their case it was, I, you know, it's just, they're just people, and when they do that, they're just people you look up to. Oh, yeah. They're, a lot of what they do is is just pure, purely, I think, selfless, and it's mm-hmm. super admirable. It's, honestly, I think would even say that some of these men were honestly godsends for our nation and were a gift of grace, yeah. a gift of his grace, I'd say. Mm-hmm. This, I, again, I'm a little biased towards Frederick Douglass, but I especially think he was one of those uh, gifts of God's grace. So. Mm-hmm. I hear you there. Yeah. But anyways, um, so then following back to Dr. King, so then after that, he and, he and a gentleman named Ralph Abernathy Began, brought together more than 100 black ministers to found the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, so the SELC, which was a very big part in the civil rights movement in the 60s. And then one of the biggest things that was, which I think is like, everybody knows is like basically the highest point for Dr. Dr. King was on August 28, 1963, when he and multiple black and white ministers came together with 250,000 people with the March on Washington, which is one of the biggest, was, was one of the biggest 250,000. 250,000. I honestly don't think there's ever been... I Now, I don't know historical records of this, but I don't think there's ever been a crowd that size at 
in Washington DC gathered yeah. than that. I don't think yeah. there's ever been a bigger crowd, which is kind of incredible. I know. And this is for when he was trying to do more of the discussing more of the freedom now speech to try to get more desegregation and de desegregating a lot, a lot of the laws that were still around. This is right. when Kennedy was president. Trying to push that emphasis onto Kennedy more and how important it is for the country. Since Kennedy was a lot focused on communism, Cold War, and all that jazz. But this is also the b- biggest moment because this is when we heard Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous speech ever, the Free at Last speech. Yeah. While his declaration of what, what his goals are and what is most important under God to be free at have all the white and black people to work together and to be free at last together. It was one of the biggest and best speeches I had ever heard in my life. And you can actually find it on YouTube to listen to what Dr. King says. And it's incredible to listen to. And so from then, from there, he continued doing more things with helping other people. He actually met a few presidents trying to talk, discussing more about the segregations. He met with Kennedy and with um, Johnson, trying to get further on all these other fronts. And then in 65, there was the other big one event that happened when Dr. King organized a... Pro- so in order to give... To protection of voting rights for African Americans, for protection on the voting rights, for black enfranchisement, he gave a series of demonstrations and peaceful demonstrations alongside the famous march in Selma in, in 1965. That was in Alabama, right? Yeah, from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery. It was a big march walk. How long is that trek? I'm not for sure, to be I, I can look it up quick yeah. as you keep yeah. going. Because for Selma, that was actually there was a movie about that, which I have yet to watch myself, but I've seen bits and pieces, but it looks amazing. But um, it was detailing his walk to, from Alabama to Montgomery to show it, especially to the governor of the state, uh, how important it is to let black enfranchisement to be there, especially for protecting for voting right, protection of voting rights. And in this one, too, this is one of the biggest moments because alongside the peaceful demonstrations that was of, of the march, it was televised. And with the televisation, it was showed... All it showed the disasters of what, like proving to people from the north and the south, what it means for people to walk in love. Especially since the all the police and those who came basically attacked them and beat them with a lot of stuff alongside mm-hmm. that. Right. It showed the hardships of what people face, but also shows about what people can do in walking in love and right. showing other demonstrations alongside yeah. that. And I don't think the people who were doing the march, I don't think they ever turned violent, did they? Nope. Which is honestly incredible that. That that's really good because that showed like how it it how it, it, it was a, it was symbolic to the United States but also the world because how wrong it is it, it represented how, how wrong the they were. actions uh, the laws that were in right place. but also it gave their their cause uh, more justification and yeah. more um it gained, their cause gained more sympathy which. Yeah. And by the way, I did um, look up the walking distance. So driving distance from Selma to Montgomery is only about an hour, so 54 minutes. But the walking distance would be 15 hours and 54 minutes. Wow. 48.9 miles. Wow. Via old Selma Road. Wow. According to Google Maps. Yeah. And um, the march took place from March 7th to march 21st in 1965 so i figured they wouldn't march a whole day straight right i figured they would do well multiple demonstrations multiple demonstrations yeah so the selma march was not one continue it was not one continuous demonstration it it was continuous but it was multiple different ones kind of culminating but still on the way to montgomery because that was the whole point right yeah but it showed uh, basically what walking in love means but also by not attacking back and also Mm. showing how wrong these laws were 
I mm-hmm. especially with the people with the cops and those who were there actually right. beating up people and attacking them for it because they're not because they weren't stopping. Eventually, it did. It did get to. I think eventually, at one point, the cops didn't respond in violence. Mm. So it it did. It did have. It obviously had an effect, right? Right. Exactly. I, I apologize. I I remember this event, but I don't remember the outcomes exactly. Same here. Which is, I, I want to research it further personally. And I, right. To be told, I want to see the movie because I've mm. never seen the film. But no, is it called Sel- um, Selma? Oh yeah, I think I remember that. It yeah. came out in like the twenty tens, right? Um. Yeah. Yeah. Early twenty mid twenty tens. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Came out around the time. I think actually, before, I think right before we started college. Actually, Wyatt, if I remember correctly. Oh, cool. Yeah. But, um, uh, no, and then he continued doing much more work and ministering and helping being a light. He actually, um, backed, uh, before, tragically, before Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated, he actually backed his campaign. Mm. And he also formed a poor people's campaign. He turned the focus from civil rights to focusing on people, the poor people of the world, those who are poor and unjust from any, mul- any nationality, any color, and just showing about why he was trying to put an emphasis on how to make the helping the poor to be better people and to get in form of more formidable political coalition. And that's what he was doing in 1968, was trying to form, going to Memphis to organize more events about this, trying to highlight about what, how we need to help the poor people, as well as helping to try and help, and get, help them to be better, to earn better lives. But unfortunately, in Memphis in 1968, Dr. King was tragically assassinated by a white racist person, mm-hmm. and... Unfortunately, it was just that, which is yeah. purely tragic, because this man was truly was a man who was changing the world in so many ways. Right, yeah. But he still established an important legacy despite that fact. And it was um, during the '80s that um, his birthday became a national holiday. Yep, every January. And when they carved hit a monument of him in Washington D.C., which I actually have visited, it's really I cool. So, I believe it. it. It, I forget which quote it have him, but it was. I don't know. I want to say it was like an appeal to heaven, almost. Um, yeah. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. monument uh, quote. I think there are actually... Apparently there are several quotes. Um, out of the mountain. Oh, yeah. It was... The statue said, Out of the mountain of, a, of despair, a stone of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, and it was kind of, and I love in the imagery. Obviously, is meant to communicate, so it's him carved. Yeah. But it shows that he's still attached to the rock that they carved his figure out of. Yeah, and uh, and that's like very, very poetic. Out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope. So yeah, I mean, the fifties and sixties civil rights wise were very much kind of seen in a dis as a scene i mean before that it was kind of seen as a scene of despair like would they be would african-americans be treated as equal citizens and would segregation be removed and from that despair a stone of hope so yeah i and i like how they call it a mountain of despair because trekking a mountain is not easy no and it's like they understood the work that they do. It was a mountain to climb. Mm-hmm. So out of a mountain of despair that they had to climb it. A, yeah. A stone of hope. Yeah, because the civil rights movement was a movement that needed to happen. It really yeah. did. And, but in just in the peaceful demonstrations were what was needed. Mm. Some of the other demonstrations with violence, I would argue on that one because I have never, 
the violent demonstrations were something that were very sh- I think yeah. should have been taken differently. But it, that's a different story. Right. Um, if we want to do another episode like this, we could talk about like uh, groups that actually would oppose uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement. Like uh the black the Black Panther Party yeah or Malcolm X's T Jeans and yeah Malcolm X he something I mean he's kind of a complex figure he's, he is he's some of the things you would say no some of the things you would say yes like yeah. I would agree with this it, yeah. so yeah that's one black figure who's more I don't want to say paradox he's just complex yeah very complex oh yeah that we would have to look into further we kind of with this episode we're kind of just looking at people who we think are very admirable and who we think should be looked up to. Yeah, and you've changed history yeah. for the better. And, but, yeah, no. But the last thing I would say about Dr. Kane is, is that the reason why I look up to him as a hero is that he was a man who I want, like to aspire to be. Just like as a Christian, as a man, trying to be able to stand for what is right, but also showing that we don't need to fight, that there are times where we don't need to fight in order to prove a point. And just to show... We cannot, we cannot stop sin with more sin. Exactly. And honestly, taking root as a minister from the teachings of Jesus and going from there, it just makes it even better. Mm. But um, is there anything else you want to say? What? Otherwise, we're going to go into the next topic. Our uh, next gentleman. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't think there's anything else. Okay. I know I repeatedly phrased the quote from his uh, monument, but honestly, it is very poetic. So. Yep, I agree on that one. And so the last person we intend to discuss is the. African American first African American baseball player and who was inducted into the Hall of Fame, Jackie Robinson. Yes. So my source is mainly from the film that was released back in twenty thirteen, starring Chadwick Boseman. Um, mostly okay. because this film is actually one of the, to be honest, I would say one of the most accurate historical films I have seen. Mm-hmm. It is very much obviously there, there are tropes that probably included there are in fictional aspects they included in the film, but from what I've researched, the film actually ha- highlights most of his life, most of his early baseball career. And as accurate and very close to what it was. Um, he, as Wyatt mentioned, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, MLB Hall of Fame. He was also the first African-American baseball player. But one of the highlights I would say is, especially in the start of his career, he was one of the... He had the courage to actually resist arguing with, arguing with others when they called the names. Because when you're playing baseball, you're going from north to south. And the south, his characteristics was not pretty. And he was ridiculed. For mean baseball, playing a baseball player in a white baseball team. Yeah. And he was heckled and just so many stuff happened alongside his career in baseball at the start of it that he literally, yeah, he was literally had not to fight because if he fought, he would have been arrested in the South. Oh, yeah. Because he, otherwise, because they, no one would have taken into consideration what the white people did. They would not take into consideration what he did. Yeah. And his, and the one challenge he did in his early career was actually not fighting back, but actually standing up, but not, having the courage not to fight back. Yeah. And actually being able to show that he can still play baseball. Kind of like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Basically, yes. And... Two key events, I would say. So he were, he was on the team for the, the Brooklyn Dodgers, New York Dodgers, before they became Los Angeles. To me, they'll always be the Brooklyn Dodgers, but that's me. Um, Wait, what were they what are they called now? The the L.A. Dodgers. Oh, yeah, they moved to L.A., yeah. Yeah. To me, they'll always be Brooklyn Dodgers, but that's me. Um, I but, think the Dodgers won a Super Bowl. Or, Super Bowl. Fa- baseball, World, man, baseball! World Series, I'm sorry. The Super Bowl <laughs> happened a couple weeks ago. Yes, no, well, actually, we're watching... 
um, Robinson actually led them to the Super Bowl. They, uh, oh my gosh, why? What have you done to me? <laughs> it's sorry. baseball, man. Baseball. I know. They actually led them to the World Series, and they actually won the World Series. I apologize for the uh, for the hardcore baseball fans. We messed up here. I am a hardcore baseball fan. He's trying to correct me. It's terrible. No, I'm not. <laughs> Baseball's great. I just don't. I'm not too into sports. I know, but anyways, um, he actually. But I appreciate Jackie Robinson. Yes, Jackie Robinson actually led the team to the World Series. I think once, maybe twice. I'm not for sure. But he he, he actually won. They they won the, with him. They won the pennant quite a few times, especially in 1947 when he played for the Dodgers. He won the pennant and won and also one of the greatest baseball runs because he. Was the one who won the game for him with this home run. Was I think it was a three way. If I remember correctly, I think it was a three way home run. If, I, if anybody knows I'm wrong, please correct me on it. But basically, also he. Um, but two of the big events in his early career was when he, when the Dodgers played against the Philadelphia, um, um, Phillies, the Philadelphia Phillies, and in that team because the coach Ben Chapman. At the start, at the first game as well as the second game that they played against them, the first time when that when they were in New York, he kept calling him the certain word that we're not allowed to say. Yeah, and basically the N word, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah. And basically ridiculed them and did so many rude comments. And again, he was not allowed to. He couldn't fight him if he did. He would have been arrested, and Ben Chapman wouldn't have been accused of anything. Now and, that I know this about him, I have a lot of respect for him. Yeah, and. And then when they moved to Philadelphia, now they're actually, first before I say, so in the movie, this is where it kind of gets a little fictionalized, because again, we don't know for sure. According to the director, he added this in because there had to have been a moment or two in his life where he had to do this. And there's a scene or whatever where um, he, after Chapman uh, psychs him out basically with what he was saying, he walked away into a, into the bag inside the bag, not the bag cage, but past the dugout into the hallway and literally smashed his bat screaming at what was going on and stuff like that. It was a powerful moment based on like how good, how much can a man take based on somebody who ridicules him and just mm-hmm. says so many stuff. Again, we aren't for sure if that what happened, but again, the director makes a valid point that there had to have been a moment or two where he might have broke or something like that for just a brief time right. quietly behind the scenes without people seeing him. Yeah. And... But um, anyways, back to what Briff ha- happened. Um, afterwards, because of the ridicule that happened, though, Chapman actually got in trouble. Um, the Dodgers and the Phillies, the managers, so um, that would be um, uh, uh, Branch, and uh, I forget the other man's name, unfortunately. Um, they had a discussion and stuff like that. Like they, for one thing, they tried to get Jackie Robinson out to come to Philadelphia to, um, to play, and. And but yeah, Blanche came, told him otherwise, and because of it, Chapman got in trouble. And Chapman, the manager's like, "Okay, we need to stop stop the situation, wherever you need to stop doing what you're doing." And literally, in order to show that they made peace, Robinson and Chapman, and you can actually look this up online. You can find the pictures. Had posts from magazines and newspapers showing that they were um, that they were on friendly terms, and literally they held a bat together, taking pictures with one another. And you can actually look them up online because they are there. Sweet. And, Wait, who did he hold the bat with? Ben Chapman to show that they were on friendly terms and that oh. they were res- and that it was all resolved. In other words, he Ben Chapman had to stop doing what he was doing during the games. Gotcha. And but that was one of the big events that I found that was incredibly fascinating. The second one though, now this is actually more of a, what I've researched. I found out this is a, only a legend. So the star player of the Dodgers at the time was a shortstop named Pee Wee Reese. He was a one of, a really good shortstop player. He did an excellent job, and. Um, there were some strife between him and um, 
there were some strife between no, actually there wasn't strife between Pee Wee Reese and Jackie Robinson, but Jackie Robinson, as a good first baseman, was also good at shortstop because of his because le- of his reach and because of how he can catch baseballs. And there's a possibility that he might replace Pee Wee Reese. The thing about Pee Wee Reese is though is just I mean, he actually was cool with what Jackie Robinson did, but a lot of people thought it was a rev- no, the between the two is a bit of a... A rivalry, but that's more of a legend you... you well, not, well not, that's not the legend part. Oh, Well, okay. more of a... Excuse me, I'm sorry. <clears throat> more of a, um... Um, what was it, um... More like people were, were feeling threatened that Jack Robinson was going to take over Pee Wee Reese's spot and Pee Wee Reese is going to go bye-bye. Oh. Um, and Pee Wee Reese actually... Again, I'm not for this part. I'm not for sure, but like he received threatening letters and stuff. Or alongside, well, obviously, Jack Robinson received threatening letters, mm-hmm. and boy, oh boy, you wouldn't believe the letters he received. <laughs> um, but J.P. Reese also got a threatening letter, and he he had to, according to legend, he had to make a stand of where he was. And uh, now, so they were down south, around where P.B. Reese lived, and he and people were booing Jack Robinson like normal, and basically doing all that stuff in the south. And what Pee Wee Reese did, now now there is a statue mobilized in this moment, so it could have been true, been true of what happened. Pee Wee Reese actually went out to shortstop, and, or not a shortstop, to the first base, or right field, I forget this position, forgive me. Um, but he out to where Jackie Robinson is and put his arm around him to show what he where he stood. And people's reaction was... Like it was like, what is he doing? Yeah. But and, but it was a, it was that moment. Now there is no photo- photography. There was no picture of this moment. But there is a statue immobilized of these two doing it. Of okay. Pee Wee having his arm around Jackie Robinson, showing where he stood. That he stood with Jackie Robinson. So that's the part that may or may not be true. That's the part that's legend. We aren't for sure if it actually happened. But, okay. But that was the one thing that explained their relationship. Even so, you could see it as like one of those myth stories, kind of like George Washington and his chopping down the cherry tree, but telling the truth anyways. Yeah. Um, you could see it as one of those moments that's a myth and people know it's not true, but it's meant to be a moralizing lesson of encouraging that kind of brotherhood among teammates. Exactly. Regardless of their skin color. Exactly. And that's who Peter Reese and Jackie Robinson were. They had a brotherhood together and a friendship together. And that and Peter Reese wanted to show his family, the people that have the, where he lived and where he stood. And that was one of the big moments of Jackie Robinson's of his early career. Once I bring them, bring them home, taking the pennant a few times and going to the World Series. For any uh, baseball fans, I mean, I imagine you already know this information, but um, he was with the Dodgers when they were Brooklyn from nineteen forty seven to nineteen fifty six. So about nine years, um, a hundred. Sorry, nine hundred of his career stats. Nine hundred forty seven. Uh, home runs, mm-hmm. uh, or runs, I should say, runs, uh, hits 1,518. Yep. And his batting average was 0.313. I don't know how good of a batting average that is. I imagine huge. it's pretty good. Huge. Huge. Okay. The baseball expert says it's huge. And, um, 200 stolen bases. Yep. So he knew how to run. He, he yeah. Like, he literally knew how to run and psych pitchers out and everything. Though, there are good. those rare play- players that are just incredibly fast. Yeah. So, um, he won six pennants. Do you know what those are? Like, that's basically kind of like with, say, the AFC-NFC championship for football teams. A pennant is basically like winning a pennant for a certain part of baseball before oh. going to the World Series. For Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So it's like uh, winning a certain stat? or Basically, yes. And just winning a big prize that goes to the head straight to the World Series and stuff. Oh, gotcha. So it's like winning an award for a specific thing you did. Yeah, for basically for a team and stuff like that, for what a team did. Okay, gotcha. But... And he... 
in ten, oh, he actually had 10 seasons, sorry. That's and good. captured the 1955 World Series title with the Dodgers. Yep, that was the one. Yep. And then that was, that was much later, of course. But, but anyways, um, the last two comments I would say also is just, Jackie Robinson was also the very first number that retired his that was ever retired for baseball jerseys. And they also had in the first game of the season, if I remember, yeah, the first game of the season, it, so the first time in April when baseball starts, all the baseball teams take off their jerseys and wear a jersey of their team, of course, but it has the number 42 dedicated Jackie Robinson, so Jackie Robinson Day. Right. And they do it every year for baseball, and it's quite incredible. And um, unfortunately, Jackie Robinson passed away at an early age, like in the, 60, in the around the 50s or 60s, unfortunately. Actually, uh, he died in 1972. Oh, 72? Oh, it was yeah. still young. So not young, but younger than what normally is. Yeah, he lived for like 53 years. So Which is still pretty young. young. Yeah, we're still pretty young, but Jay Robinson is still one of my favorite heroes, but right now, unfortunately, we're slowly running out of time. I do want to clarify one thing about a comment I said earlier. Yes. So I commented earlier about how um, some slaves would actually hear the gospel message. Not, of course, I think many of them didn't hear it as it was actually said in the Bible, but that doesn't mean they couldn't still, Jesus wouldn't still bring salvation to them. In other words, what I wanted to point out was, Jesus still brought salvation to African-American yes. slaves in spite of many of their master's misunderstandings of the Bible. Exactly. So that's just the last thing I wanted to clarify. Um, anything else you want to say? Basically, the last thing we're going to say is there are so many other African-American figures we wanted to discuss, but unfortunately we couldn't. We will be doing future topics on this. We want to talk more about Rosa Parks, uh, Bass Reeves, a, um, a U.S. Marshal from the 1800s, um, Harry Tubman, who I really want to talk about because that one I really love learning we about. We can also talk about war heroes, like exactly. the, divi- the Division of the Union Army Yeah, uh, that was the first African-American division in the U.S. military. Yeah, and also the Civil War, American Revolution. Yeah. All those, ta- all those ones we can talk about. We'll be definitely, definitely talking about further topics. Um, next week we will be talking, or next time we'll meet up, we'll be talking about, taking a break from history a little bit and talking more about books and yeah. more about what we love about books and maybe you guys can put comments in about what you want to talk about books. But in the meantime, we hope you guys have a great day and thank you for listening. Bye.